You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. If you don't have a Bible this morning, um, look around, you should find a black one in a pew back near you. Uh, feel free to use that. If you don't have a Bible at home, you're more than welcome to take that with you as a gift from Trinity. We're going to start this morning with our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, and if I have prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now turn with me to Micah chapter 6 for our Old Testament reading and sermon text. Micah chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod of, and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and scant, the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. 
Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give up to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Justin Riley. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. Um, a few weeks ago, if you're if you're not uh, if if you're new here, we've been going through the Book of Micah. A few weeks ago, I was uh, appointed to read the sermon text, and I definitely read Micah six instead of Micah three. We had a great time with that, um, and so clearly it was. Uh, the Lord's kindness that I would be uh, up for preaching Micah 6. It was prophetic for sure. Let me pray uh, and we'll jump in. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that, you've, um, that you didn't just create all of creation and humanity and leave us without uh, your very word, your essence, in written form. And so, God, we're grateful for that. Uh, we're grateful that you've called us together in this place here this morning together to worship, um, to be taught, to hear your word, and by the power of your spirit to be changed by it. And so, uh, God, I pray that you would use this text, use the truth of your word today to shape our hearts, our minds, our affections toward you. And God, may all of it be for your glory. Thanks for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Yesterday was Epiphany, so that makes today Epiphany Sunday. Uh, this concludes the 12 days of Christmas, or Christmas Tide, as it's called, um, which also means you can take your Christmas decorations down, your lights down at your house if you're so inclined. If you're from Colorado, you can still defer to the stock show rule, uh, and if you're not familiar with the stock show rule, just go ahead and take your decorations down. Um, the meaning of epiphany is perhaps uh, more robust than it's colloquially used in our day as a mere mind-blowing revelation. It is, in fact, a mind-blowing re- revelation, but one of a not an ordinary sort. It is the penultimate revelation. It's the manifestation of God himself in human form. A tangible, physical revelation of the creator and sustainer of all things and his divine provision of salvation for mankind. Not an insignificant thing. And so today, in the glowing light of such a revelation, we continue our study in the book of Micah with chapter 6, wherein we've had a look at uh, sort of through the opposite side of the window of the pivotal moment in uh, history of Christ's birth, as Micah spoke the words of the very same God in chapters 4 and 5, foretelling of the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming is from of old, from ancient of days. But we back up for a second, 
And so, so far in Micah, uh, we've seen the wickedness and unfaithfulness of God's people and heard the evidence and judgments against them and against their prophets and their leaders for the utter rejection of God and embrace of the wicked ways of King Ahaz. We've seen more recently a glorious hope described. In chapter 4, Brian preached that God would raise a mountain, a temple and fount of salvation uh, to which all God's faithful will flow. And then last week, Jonathan preached from chapter 5, a beautifully hope-laden prophecy of the Messiah that will come to rule and to restore And so today, we'll see a clear instruction on what it is that God requires of his people in the wake of the the reality of Christ's coming. Here in chapter 6, God returns his gaze to his people, though doing so while conjuring the imagery of pulling them into a court of law. In the first five verses of chapter 6, we see God calling to order a trial amongst the stunning reaches of his own creation, summoning his people to testify and plead their case. And then, with more poise than Jack McCoy or Ben Matlock as a prosecuting attorney, he establishes a case against the people which is so airtight that it cannot even be argued. Listen to these first two verses in chapter 6. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Imagine all of us remember an epic time or two when you got in trouble with your parents. Maybe you knew full on, knew what you had done and thought you were going to get away with it. Or maybe you had an inkling that your friends were pulling you along into some uh, sordid late night uh, activity but couldn't have imagined it leading to you ending the evening in the back of a cop car. Who knows? Whatever the scenario. Uh, Kids, maybe you have one of these fresh, this type of scenario, hopefully not the cop car, but one of these scenarios fresh in your mind. But whatever the... Uh, Whatever the scenario, um, there's likely that singular moment in time when you hear the voice of your parent calling your name, like your full name, and your heart sinks, and your stomach makes an appearance in the back of your throat. Now, what if, like God's people here in chapter 6, you're actually hearing the voice of your father reverberating and shaking the very mountains you're standing in? Can you even conceive of a more terrifying moment than to hear the creator and sustainer of all things announcing to all of creation that he has an indictment against you? Far more terrifying than the middle naming vein in his forehead, finger in your chest, shouting, snarling version of your earthly father. Friends, we are well beyond the, I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed stage. Okay. God continues here uh, in Micah 6 to lay out his case against his people. In verses 3 to 5, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh my people, 
Remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Friends, the biting sting of guilt that, that, that is most pronounced here is that God calls them and reminds them of his gracious, gracious treatment of them as they are his people. Though they've turned their backs on him, he has not turned their, uh, his back on them or disowned them. This is a covenantal charge. God is saying, what have I done that you've grown weary or impatient with me? As if his people were the ones tired of God not holding up his end of the covenantal deal. And he promptly reminds them what he's done. He's rescued them from slavery, provided for them faithful leaders to follow, leaders who talked to God himself and spoke to the people on his behalf. And then this, in verse 5, God recounts how Balak had planned the utter destruction of the people of Israel. And he delivered them. He delivered them from slavery, from idolatry, sparing their lives from themselves and their enemies. And for what purpose, to what end, we see in the, the, the very last uh, part of verse 5, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. More dramatic than, uh, than any sitcom. This case really is airtight. And this line is the mic drop. The Lord has proven himself righteous and blameless. It's as if he's holding up a mirror for the people to see the corner that they've painted themselves into. And they're now seeing just how small that corner is. The people have no intelligible response, no case, no excuse for their sin, for turning away from God to follow wicked men. They have nothing to pin on God or to blame him for. And not so much as a teenage buddy with an underdeveloped frontal cortex to assign responsibility to. So now that this verdict is a foregone conclusion, what is the sentence? What is it that the Lord will require of his wayward people? Read with me in verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? These verses ask some of the most fundamental questions uh, to mankind. What is it that I can do to be reconciled to God? Does he want more burnt offerings? Many, many more? Thousands more? Sacrifices of goods in quantities that only kings can afford? My very own children? My legacy? And friends... Let's not be deceived into thinking that these are all sincere questions asked from a contrite heart. To be really clear, the response that we're seeing here is one of religious hypocrisy. This is not different from our own day. 
The burning question seared into the hearts and minds of all of humanity is how do I get out of trouble? What will appease the God of the universe? What's the least I can offer him to avoid punishment? To be sure, there is an earnestness that can be in these questions. But the Lord has already told his people. So these are actually questions coming from a place of essentially declaring, I I asked mom, I didn't like her answer. I'm going to go ask dad and see if I can get a different answer, maybe something easier for me to do to get out from under the crushing weight of my guilt. I don't know if you guys have seen... Uh, if you're Dilbert fans, it's kind of like cilantro. It's like a real love it or hate it situation. Uh, but there's a Dilbert comic where he's, uh, there's, a, there's a kid like just putting his entire body weight into the door, the entry door of a building, like just leaned on it. And there's a sign that says the Midvale School for the uh, Gifted and Talented. And there's a huge sign right above his head that says pull. Right? So it's a pull door and he's like putting all his weight into it. It's as clear as it can be. Um, and it's as though that like, God through Moses has already made it clear what he desires, like a giant sign above their heads, and yet they have done the very opposite and are asking really disingenuously, what are we to do? Should I sacrifice my kids on the altar of secular paganism like the people around me? Should I write a bigger check, build a bigger church Building for the church to use? Put a slightly covert Jesus bumper sticker on my car? Wear a t-shirt every day with a really big, bold Christian slogan on the back? Really commit to perfect attendance at church this year? Like, what is it? And this is how wicked people use religion. And I mean, whether a person is an evangelical Christian or a secular one, the convulsions of our day, both inside the church and outside of it, all stem from using religion like this. How can I, or what can I do to cover my sin, to appease the God or the universe? Is it to make some kind of religious show or post something uh, pithy on social media that really takes a stand, go on a march, or maybe it is to attend a church, sing some songs, throw money at some worthy cause. All of them in an attempt, a feeble attempt, to placate one's own mind and pacify the God of the universe. We treat God as a child to be distracted and kept quiet, a child forced to attend a business meeting with us, How do we keep God pacified? How do we keep him distracted? We're rotten all the way down, and this is plain to everyone who's paying attention. But in God's graciousness, in his kindness, we come to verse 8. He's told you, you can uh, read along with me. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Three verbs, do, love, and walk, and three subjects. Justice, 
mercy, and humility. So there are four principles in answering the question of what is it that God requires of us. The first is that God does not want to be trifled with. He doesn't want your babblings. Running through all three of these verbs is a monumental truth that God wants you, all of you, all of your heart, all of your life. He doesn't want trifles. He doesn't want to be pacified. He does not want a person to merely show up here on a Sunday, sing a few songs, make a few religious gestures, and leave the rest of your life alone. He wants you as a person all the way from your head to your fingertips to your toes. We see this throughout Scripture. Psalm 40, verse 6 Reads, sacrifices and burnt offerings you did not require, but a humble and contrite heart. Deuteronomy 6, uh, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your, your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. There's no neutrality here. The command to love the Lord with all that you have is intended to. It is meant to shape how you teach your kids and to shape, <coughs> excuse me, and shape the words that you use and actions you take wherever you are, at home, at work, with friends, whether you're traveling, when you go to bed, when you wake in the morning. A deep and abiding love for the Lord is to be bound, bound to the work of your hands. It is to saturate your mind and your thoughts and is to be on clear display in every corner of your life. He's tired of the games that you play, the religious games, your arrogance, your divided life of managing perceptions as if, if only the people around me think that I'm a good person, that's good enough. If, if only I can put on a show enough for the people at church to not ask questions, for them to not doubt or question my sincerity. God is tired of it. His requirements are straightforward, and he spells them out in these next three principles. So principle one, God doesn't want to be trifled with. Principle number two, do justice. There's an immense, of, uh, immense amount of talk in our day about justice. A whole lot more talk and disassociated actions stemming from what is an amorphous concept of justice. But God defines justice. In fact, here in chapter 6, we have some specific examples of injustices in verses 10 through 12. 
Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence and your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. We see here uh, both business problems, the, the, the concept of deceitful weights was one of tricking people into paying for more goods than they were actually getting, uh, as well as the political problems in, uh, in the amount of deceit and violence and wickedness come to bear in these people. These people were manipulating the dictionary, and we should be very clear-eyed in understanding that the same play is being run on us today, that there is a monumental fight for the dictionary, calling evil good and good evil. But know this, church, that God hates, God hates the flaccid, ambiguous, and so-called creative interpretations of justice in our day. His justice is a clear, stationary, grounded standard that is universally applied. The justice of our day is something made unclear by ever-changing standards. And let's be really, really clear. In an age where standards are unclear, they're unclear on purpose. The intent is to hide in the ambiguity deliberately opaque so as to avoid incrimination and and continue swimming in a pool of idolatrous self-fulfillment and deflection. This is like arguing that the law doesn't actually say what it clearly, plainly appears to say in order to avoid being found guilty. Sound familiar? So what then? Of the wicked who continue reveling in injustice. We see in verses 13 to 15 what shall happen. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. This is a terrifying description of desolation and utter futility, absolute like uselessness of your efforts. Whatever you toil at is ultimately going to produce nothing. And if it should happen to produce something, I'm going, it will be stripped away. A complete stripping away of whatever perceived wealth and security that had been wrought on the basis of injustice. Injustice. Injustice that had been held up in place of God-defined justice like a virtue. But God's justice maintains a glorious standard and process. What is it that God requires of you but to do justice, to keep your word, to refuse to cheat, to refuse to grasp and toil and work with all sorts of effort and great great expense at wealth gained without integrity? 
do right by those you walk with and those who are entrusted to you. Treat them, lead them, love them as God's called you to. This standard is not influenced by bribes. It's not influenced by your own feelings or the feelings of others. It names what is good and evil by standards that God has already defined. And it responds to those standards with real actions. Principle number three, to love mercy. Friends, a man who is clear about the nature of justice is also a man who will come to love mercy. This, the word here for mercy, and listen, um, if you are new here, I, you may, it, maybe it's clear. I'm not the normal guy in here. Uh, it's normally Brian. I'm nowhere near a Hebrew scholar, but I thought this one was valuable. Um, this word is the, the Hebrew word chesed. It's translated as mercy. It can be translated as kindness. Most often it is translated as steadfast love. And steadfast love is a covenantal Love, that is the nature of it. And so uh, what we need to understand here in the, the call, the, the text actually says, six, eight, um, do justice and to love kindness is the ESV's translation. So what does this mean? This covenant love bears burdens that are not their own. What, what would a society or an individual, or a family, or a church look like that lives according to God's requirements here. It is one that would bear another's burdens, that will attend to mercy. They will love with the entirety of their being, the steadfast love, this covenantal love of the Lord. And so the practice of mercy, the mutual responsibility and blessing is contained in this idea of covenantal steadfast love. Friends, 1 Corinthians, uh, the New Testament reading today, wasn't written as a script for weddings. It's actually defining a standard. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not Irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. These few verses are replete with more verbs. This Because this is the active nature of love. It is not a sentimental thing. It is not an emotion-centric, subjective standard. And this is a perennial American folly. This is a fight, again, over the dictionary to define love in terms so lacking active participation in the love of others as it makes the word lack any meaning whatsoever. No, this, the, the nature of this biblical standard of love is a different substance altogether. It's not devoid of emotion. It's not cold. 
but rather it is warm. It is marked by affection, but it is an affection that does things. Things like those we looked at in Deuteronomy 6 and are, and are pointed directly to here in 1 Corinthians 13. And I, I joke about uh, the wedding script because far too often that, that really does mark the end of the association in our minds. So let me be really clear. Yes, 100%. If you are married, um, you, your marriage should absolutely be a constant workshop in the practical application of the standard, this standard of covenantal love. And you don't check those obligations at the door when you leave the house. There are some obligations you check at the door when you leave the house. It's just, it's just so there's no confusion. But that's not all, right? That's not all that is your obligation to, to love and to, um, and to demonstrate commitment to a steadfast covenantal love. God doesn't desire mere sacrifice. He demands all of you. Your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. So not just in your marriage, not just with your kids, though absolutely in your marriage and absolutely with your kids, but also in the communities he's placed you in providentially. So what then does it look like for you to love your coworkers well? to sacrificially bear responsibility amongst your coworkers? Or what does it look like for you to love your fellow saints here at Trinity well or to bear responsibility sacrificially in this community? Or amongst your friends or your extended family or your kids' friends' families? God wants all of you all of the time in every circumstance. He wants you. He wants you to love steadfast love to love his mercy, and your entire life to be animated by that love, for covenantal love to be expressed in the words of your mouth, in the work of your hands, wherever God has placed you. Principle number four. Walk humbly with your God. Humility. Real humility treats the words of God with a blood-earnest seriousness and laughs at oneself often. It treats the truth as preeminent and one's feelings with temperance, if not a healthy skepticism. And this humility does not presume to force God's hand into absolution of sin on the basis of a particular recipe of sacrifice. That's not humility. Uh, this humility is born out of, a, out of the previous two principles of doing justice, loving mercy, as defined by God's standards. This is true humility. I'm fond of saying that humility is an honest assessment of yourself before the Lord. An honest assessment of who you are and your God-given ability with open hands, measured against the truth of God's word, recognizing your place in the order of creation, and acting out of a sincere acknowledgement that you cannot act justly or love mercy without God enabling you to do so. <clears throat> this, again, is quite different than the spirit of our age. You see, humility in our day is to treat oneself and one's feelings as preeminent, as the ultimate standard, and to be forever ambiguous and uncertain 
about what is actually true and therefore what types of actions are justified. Biblically, this is simply pride. It is presuming to occupy a space where you as an individual, as the created, not the creator, are the one trying to set the standard and the definition. So a man or a woman or a community characterized by a a God-defined humility is one that will love truth, prize the truth of God, and treat ourselves as a wonderfully and fearfully made small thing. In closing, I want us to look at chapter, or, sorry, chapter 6, still, um, verse 16. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Communities, families, and even whole societies are ordered and shaped by whom and what they worship. One second. Israel had ordered their society and their enti- the entirety of their lives together around the doctrines of Omri and thus the house of Ahab. And Ahab was a wicked king. He took whatever he wanted. He silenced and killed the prophets of God and he abused his power. And this became the culture of Israel. The societies around us are descending into chaos. And this is not merely because of some loss of democratic or Western principles. It is the loss of those principles that have been precipitated by the failure to worship the Lord of the universe and then to order our lives according to what he's told us to do. It is a failure of worship and a failure of obedience. The unavoidable principle at work here is true throughout the whole history of the entire world. We become like what we worship. So the chaos is a result of our failure of, uh, to worship the God of creation. It's a result of our idolatry, the result of our abandonment as a people of the living God. So what to do? Order your life in your household this way. Worship the Lord. Worship him in all sincerity and, and act justly toward one another. Let the principle of justice undergird the discipline of your children and not the chaotic equity and pursuit of Um, individual interpretations and feelings as a standard of justice, but rather the principles of justice as established by God in his law. Let those be the standards and principles that are applied in your life. Make the aroma of your home one of delightful, loving kindness, of steadfast love, of genuine affection, and of bearing one another's burdens. But is this the kind of life that you can conjure on your own? No. This is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the cross 
of Christ. In the cross, we see the justice of God, a just price paid for the sin of God's people. In the cross, we see the mercy of God, the loving kindness of a father bringing his children back to himself. And in the cross, we see the humility of God, an absolute reckoning of the truth of who he is as creator, judge, redeemer, and father. The cross becomes the ground for us to act justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly. So let us do so with joy. Let's pray and prepare for communion.